Previously on Two Foreskins Walk Into A Bar. Well, Malik said, what are you gonna do? I thought for a moment and closed my eyes. I'm going to fight for the man I love. Chapter 10. What is it we do when we love? He's asked me on a bloody date, Marty exclaimed. I knew I'd get him in the end. Marty was talking about his husband, Amir, with whom he'd been secretly flirting online under a fake profile. These people think they can take me on, but I can hold my breath longer than any motherfucker. It's true, Marty was hardcore and could play a long game. In fact, we'd started looking online for those old school competitions where you have to be the last person touching a brand new car to win it. Marty would outlast his competitors without breaking a sweat. I guess that's what you get from being an actor in New York. You just keep touching the car until your competitors fall away one by one. I asked Marty what his plan was. Here he was on more uncertain ground. Are you going to reveal yourself? Are you going to catch him out? What do you want the outcome of all this to be? Marty had started this, not really knowing how to finish it, which is something I could identify with. We were both absolving ourselves of any responsibility in our own lives, forcing the universe's hand, just seeing what happened to us. Me, with my bags packed, not knowing where I was going, and Marty, about to unmask himself as his husband's secret lover. I'd messaged Lionel three times, but he hadn't replied. I was distraught, and I was incapable of making a decision about what I do next with my life. If I returned to London, wasn't that just another failure on my list? Even though I couldn't make the decision, I knew I was going somewhere, so I embarked on a farewell tour. In social work, I was taught to manage endings properly, so it made sense that I'd visit a few of my gentlemen callers before I left. And in any case, many of them were becoming friends. My final visit was Mike. What's your plan? asked Mike. I'm here to suck you off, I said. I could tell he was exasperated by me already. You don't need to suck my dick to be here. I know, I said as I undid his jeans and pulled out his penis. I really did have no idea what I was going to do. I had to leave the country tomorrow. I had a flight home booked, but I'd also booked a cheap flight to Canada in case Lionel changed his mind. I didn't want anything to be standing in the way if he came around. I had no work and no money in the UK or the USA. If I went to Canada for a night and then came back to the USA, I'd get another 90 days. But wasn't that just kicking the problem down the road? Mike, who was no fool, suggested that I was acting out what he described as learned helplessness. I took his cock out my mouth and looked at him. You're putting all your problems at everyone else's door and not taking any responsibility for your own actions. This was an outrageous allegation. Mike brought up a picture on his phone. It was a graph of the gay dating pool. It showed the amount of available gay men decline significantly once you pass 40. Most of them are in relationships or they don't want them, Mike explained. There was a slight uptick in the 70s age bracket, which is where Mike was now, as men return to the dating pool when their partners die. That's what happened to me, Mike said. I'd been so solipsistic and self-absorbed in my relationship with Mike that I barely knew his story. I knew his late husband was called Victor and was a tenured professor at NYU. And I knew he died of cancer, but I'd never even bothered to ask which one. I let in a moment of reflection. How little space I had for the lives of others. Before this trial by ordeal that was my decision to come to New York, I'd have known all about Mike, Victor, what type of cancer it was. 
for I was capable of very little other than one-sided friendships, so absorbed was I in my own chaos. I shut the thought quickly from my mind. Mike pointed at the graph. So you're here, and I'm here. So basically this is my last window until my 70s. That's what the graph says. I asked where Lionel would fit in this graph. Why do you give a shit about Lionel? Mike looked at me with pity, as if I was the last person in the world to catch on to something big, the last person to hear about the internet. Love is not enough. It's what you do with it that matters. I lay my head in Mike's lap as he stroked my hair as he spoke. His cock was flaccid now, resting on his left leg like a large sea lion sunbathing on a rock. These men, Chris, these men, he sighed. They give us that glimpse, don't they? And we give them everything. But in fact, they give us nothing. Or worse, just enough. And we lay there blinded, baffled. And we throw them ropes, of course, but they don't swim back. Even the ones that want to can't. And we tell ourselves this is what we're worth. It's what we deserve. Their damage becomes our own. We become grateful for it, almost. When you figure it out, it's terrible. And... I speak for myself here, but I figured it out 30 years before Victor died. But I was too scared. I once asked Victor if he was an academic because he preferred to live in his own mind, not to need anyone, not to love anyone. He told me not to be so rebarbative. I had to look it up, of course. My hypothesis is that he intellectualized love because he was too afraid to feel it. And if it's any constellation, I think Lionel probably did love you as much as he's able to love anyone. But what these men want and what they're capable of... The sentence drifted away from him. Mike turned to me. What is it we do when we love? I think we endure. I don't want to think that, but I do. And I don't want in 30 years' time that to be your answer too. What about Robert? I asked. It's nice to hear you say his name. It sounds like he wants to take you back. At the door, Mike gave me a jockstrap and asked me to jerk off into it and send it to him from wherever I ended up. Then he put his hand on my face. We cannot fix these men, Chris. We cannot fix these men. My nemesis playwright's press night started at seven. Marty had arranged to meet Amir at five and was planning to come to the theatre afterwards. When I arrived at the Golden Theatre, Marty was already there. He ran towards me and fell into my arms. His body was shaking. I can't believe he came, he said. Marty had got to Union Square early and hid behind a tree. After a time, Amir arrived. He looked so nervous and excited. He was holding in his stomach and wearing the jumper I bought him on Thanksgiving. He was pacing up and down and, look at this. Marty showed me his phone. He played a video taken from behind the tree. In the video, you can see Amir waiting. You can tell he's nervous and he is sucking in his belly. And then a man walks up to him and kisses him on both cheeks. Who is he? I asked. Marty had no idea. I said to Marty that it was clearly someone he'd just bumped into. You could tell they were both surprised to see each other. And kissing on both cheeks was hardly a criminal offence. Marty hushed me and brought me back to the video where I could now see Amir and the man kissing on the lips, a prolonged, erotic kiss. 
I'm the only one that gets to have an affair with my husband, Marty spat. What are you going to do? Nothing. Not yet. I have the power right now and that's how I like it. Did you approach him afterwards? I asked. No, I stood the fucker up. I felt sad that deception now lay at the heart of Marty and Amir's relationship. I remember Amir getting the grinder notification when I was in his kitchen and hesitated as to whether I should tell Marty or not. The bell rang. It suddenly hit me. I was about to be in the same room as Robert. I started to cry. I told Marty I couldn't go in. I was too scared to see him. But Marty pulled me in and sat us in our seats. We were in the mezzanine, which Marty scolded me for, but it meant I couldn't see all the seats directly below us. Nevertheless, I scoured the room for Robert. I could see, however, my nemesis playwright take her seat. Her open, kind face was now withered, frightened, I suppose. I folded my arms and sat back in my seat with a sneer. Let's get this over with, I thought. Come on, let's see you pull the wool over the eyes of another set of critics. Heaven forbid they see you for the hack you really are. The play was astonishing. The sweeping scale and breadth of the story, the complexity and nuance of its ideas, its playful, surprising form, its ingenious, masterful structure, the sheer skill and confidence of the endeavour, and the language... Not one word wasted, not one word too few. The audience laughed, cried, and in the final line before the interval, 804 of us gasped in a moment none of us saw coming. It was truly exquisite. The air in the intermission fizzed with excitement. We were all of us gripped. A spell had been cast. I looked at Marty, ever the loyal friend. He shrugged in a take-it-or-leave-it kind of way. I squeezed his knee, and he poured forth the joy of the first 90 minutes. That bit where he and he said in and I didn't see that bit coming when she revealed she was Afterwards, I sat still, deeply spoken to by the play. Then I rose to my feet and applauded till my hands hurt. I turned to my right, and there, smiling, was Robert. As he took me in some more, he noticed my emaciated, pallid appearance and his face turned to shock, and then that smile again. We held each other as the crowd swarmed out. I didn't want to let go of him. We need to get you some food, he said. Robert was wearing his press night shoes and suit jacket. I didn't recognise the shirt he had on, and he had new glasses. His hair was longer, more styled than before. He looked good. For many months, I thought I had killed him. If the pain he was feeling was anywhere close to what I was feeling, then I figured I must have brought him pretty close to death. But in front of me now was confirmation that he was alive and looking well. We talked about the play, how incredible it was, how fantastic his work was too, and I asked him to pass on my respect and admiration to my nemesis. Robert, who was present at my nemesis playwright origin story all those years ago, laughed and confessed that he'd taken a small amount of delight in working on her play. We soon relaxed into our familiar chit-chat. I felt like we were in a parallel universe, a place where I hadn't done the unthinkable, and I was struck by the irony that had I not left Robert, I'd still have ended up in the exact same place on this day, sat opposite him in a burger bar in Times Square. There was no denying the pain I had put him through. 
and although he still suffered terribly, he was no longer angry. The anger wasn't helping him. We walked through Times Square and sat on top of the red stairs where you buy the discount tickets. Lit by the livid glare of the protein Times Square lights, we caught up on work, our families, our friends. No one in the world knew me as well as Robert did. And yet, as each new neon light refracted onto him, I wondered if I knew him at all. It felt at once familiar and foreign. A strange state of being that was the same, but not at all the same. We throbbed with a lurid, unearthly glow. Robert went quiet. Then he said, I've been worried about you. I think I've had a nervous breakdown, I remarked. In your letter, you said you'd done your grieving. That was very hard to hear, you know, Chris. I felt like I wasn't given that opportunity. You knew you were going to leave me and had the time to prepare, but you gave me no warning. You just disappeared. At the time, it felt very violent. Looking at Robert now, I knew I hadn't even remotely begun to start grieving him and our relationship. But maybe this was a good thing. Maybe I wasn't meant to grieve him, as I was never meant to leave him. And you never gave me a reason. It's weird, because now, I don't want one. I don't think I need it. You did what you needed to do, and sometimes terrible things happen in life, like a plane falling from the sky, or an earthquake, or the man you love the most gets up one day and doesn't come home. The worst thing that could ever happen to me happened. And it turns out, you don't die. Not from heartbreak. And for a while I gave you the power, knowing the reason was what was going to get me out of this, but eventually I did it without you. Without thinking, I said, I wanted to be loved differently. Robert looked at me and was silent for quite some time. I could tell I had wounded him. He said, You know, sometimes I think for you it's about the line. Your brain comes up with this good line and yeah, it's zingy and looks good on a page and sounds good on stage, but it's not what you actually think. It's just a line. Watching you drift away and not being able to reach you was the worst experience of my life and you turn it into a pithy one-liner. Robert, I am so, so sorry. Can I come home with you, please? I think I'm ready. He looked at the floor. I loved you the best I could, he said. But you don't love me now? Of course I love you. I will always love you. My flight is tomorrow, Robert. I still got the keys to the flat. No, you don't, Robert replied. Don't you remember you posted them back through the letterbox before your taxi came? I left you at the wheelie bins, then I came back to the flat and I just slumped down against the door and you posted the keys back through the letterbox and they hit me on the head. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to laugh at this. It's not fucking funny. You really hurt me. There was a long pause. Robert said, All I wanted every single day was for you to come home and for you to let me take care of you, for you just to let me love you again and for me to take your pain away. But you never did. And I realised eventually I might as well be trying to bend a spoon with my mind. And you say now you wanted to be loved differently. Well, I don't think I have another way. I didn't mean that, Robert. You're right. It just came to me and I said it. Please can I come home, Robert? Robert stood up and turned to look at me. 
he said, I read somewhere we can only know what we can bear to know. I think I know enough now. He squeezed my hand and smiled, and then walked down the red steps into the crowd until I couldn't see him anymore. It took me several minutes to process what had just happened. I sat motionless, emotionless, and totally alone. Tourists milled around me regardless, taking photos and laughing. There must be hundreds of photos taken in the hour I sat there, taken by people from all over the world, and in each one, in the corner, is me. A ghostly apparition in the background of your happiness. I went over to Hell's Kitchen to find Marty. He was, of course, on the dance floor, majestic as ever, feet liberated from plaster cast and crutches. I took in the scene. Men everywhere, booze everywhere. What I really wanted to do was eat. So I walked down Ninth Avenue towards a pizza place I liked. On the way there, I passed a restaurant with an excited throng outside. I peered in, the usual beggar at the feast, and saw Robert and my nemesis and the rest of the creative team. They were laughing, embracing, revelling in their hard-won success. I stared through the window, thinking they might look up at me. I recognised Robert's laugh, shrill and glorious, so infectious. As I observed their joy, I wondered to myself, is it even possible to be happy and truthful at the same time? Happiness isn't a place I figured that much out in these last 90 days, and the lies I told myself just to get out of bed some mornings. But I could hear some truths knocking on my door. Would I be happier if I let them in? The following day, I made it through JFK security with no fuss. I'd arranged to hook up with a guy on Grinder who worked in a retail establishment in Departures. He knew of a disabled bathroom that was tucked away and he used it as his regular place. When I arrived at the location, a man was leaving and he held the door open for me where I found my assignation was ready and waiting. He was clearly operating a tight schedule. In the departure lounge, I sat on the floor and leant against the glass window, the airfield behind me. I thought about Robert. How lucky I was to know such a good and honourable man. What a special, beautiful person he was. And is. I let myself feel the loss. I went through my archived WhatsApp chats. There were hundreds of unfinished conversations with random men. I scrolled through the looking, the intos, the ubiquitous good you. It was a shrine to desire, yes, but also a monument to my unmet need. I continued through my Magna Carta of loneliness and I saw my chat with Lionel. The hours I had spent doing textual analysis on each sentence, each full stop, each emoji. Desperately needing meaning, reassurance. I saw it all with new eyes. What I'd taken previously as proof of his love now appeared to me as proof of its absence. It's the spaces between. I'd filled them with his love. After all, there is a difference between what is arguable and what is demonstrable. I had argued for Lionel's love without ever having it demonstrated to me. And he didn't owe me that. Calmly and without anger, I deleted the messages, leaving a blank slate. I thought of Robert still, how he had let go of anger, 
and I try to imagine inside of me a candle. And no critic, no gatekeeper, no empty auditorium, and no man would ever get to blow it out. I would guard it fiercely. The dogs that bound round my feet in the park, happy in their ignorant joy. That wide-eyed baby living presently in each second of the day. I will let them be my teachers. I will let them be my guide. I looked up to the departure screen. London Heathrow was listed, third from the top. And underneath it, Montreal. London, final call. Montreal, final call. You got spunk all down your t-shirt, a voice said. I looked down and saw that, sure enough, I had indeed been wandering around JFK with a large amount of spunk on the front of my t-shirt. And the back, the guy said. It was the man who had held the door open for me. Let he without sin cast the first stone, I said. He gleefully spun around 360 degrees to show his spunk-free attire. He doffed his baseball cap and did a little bow with a ta-da gesture. I salute you, I said. Oh, you're British. You know there's two things I love about British guys? I laughed. I can never play it cool in moments like this. Where are you headed? he asked. I looked again at the departure screen and then back to the smiling man. That is a very good question. Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar is written and narrated by Chris Thompson, directed by Andrew Falaise, edited and post-production by Christopher Hooth.